Welcome to the conversation. I'm Jonathan Larson, TYT's managing editor. Some 200 organizations have just asked President Biden not to force millions of people to have to resume their monthly student loan payments. Unless he does something, that's exactly what's gonna happen in January, at the end of January. So what happens then? Well, Michael Sonato is a labor and economic justice reporter who recently looked into exactly that for the Guardian newspaper and joins us tonight. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jonathan, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, so let's let's talk about the the sort of worst case scenario. The worst case scenario here: Biden does nothing, and the um, pause on student loan repayments comes to an end at the end of January. What happens then? So, at the end of January, right now, over 44 million Americans have student debt. The average payment is around 400 dollars a month. Um, most people have federal student loans, and those people have had you know two years of relief, so they haven't had to make that huge extra payment um, every month. And with everything going on with the labor market, um, you know, over 15 million workers are still being impacted by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, whether they're unemployed out of the labor force or you know still working reduced schedules or with reduced pay. Um, so, you know, that's going to put people back onto student debt, and that's when the interest on those loans with that pause is going to start continuing to, you know, accrue and build up. And you know, speaking with people with you know big sums of student debt that are you know struggling to get out ahead of it, that that's a you know significant problem, um, especially when it comes to, to private loans um, that people take out for for school uh, because those interest rates are higher uh, and that compounds a lot uh, quicker, especially if you know you get out of school and you know you know some people might not pay, you know pay attention to it the first few years while they get their career on the you know the right path and then they look ahead and they owe you know two or three times more than they originally took out um, and then even after making payments on a regular basis, um, they're really not cutting into that principle, and, and you know I think that's a really big issue. You have a lot of people who are you know not in an economic position to to take on paying these loans once again, um, and, and they're not in an economic position where they can you know get out ahead of you know the high interest with student debt. And explain the role you touch on this a bit in your article, but explain the role that systemic racism plays, not necessarily so much in terms of this this pause or anything, but just in student loans generally. But therefore, in terms of the impact this will, the resumption of repayments will have. Well, student loans, the the money is you know run by the the banks. So uh, you know, there's all sorts of reports, studies on how banks and lenders uh, discriminate against um, you know Black Americans uh, and other racial groups. Uh, there was an analysis a few years ago done by Brookings that found uh, Black graduates uh, from college, as soon as they get out of college, they owe you know around $7,800 more in student debt than white college graduates. And in four years, because of interest and because of the kinds of loans black graduates are able to obtain to get into school, um, you know, that that gap expands to over 25,000 in four years. Uh, and 
you know, I, I spoke with a lot of um, you know black college graduates uh, who are struggling with student debt, and you know they've had that issue where they are dealing with really, really, really high interest rates. Um, you know, I, I tweeted uh, a, a student loan debt. Um, example from you know one of those people uh, who is a lawyer in North Carolina. Uh, you know she took out a substantial amount of student debt to get through law school, seventy-two thousand. Uh, she wasn't able to make payments because she wasn't making enough money uh, the first few years out of school, uh, and then you know now she pays. You know she makes a good amount of money as a lawyer, but she's paying fourteen hundred dollars a month, and uh, you know you see on on that. Um, that example I, I posted on Twitter that she's paid more than the money she has taken out, but she still owes over a hundred thousand dollars when she only took out seventy-two thousand dollars in debt. And that's you know not an anomaly. I think there's a lot of different examples of of people um you know being buried with student debt because of that. And all of that's accounted for by by interest that's accrued yeah. over the years. So. Um, the explain a little bit about how um, how the systemic racism manifests, right? Because uh, something has to happen in the loan process as soon as the loan is issued. Is it is it that they're denied as good rates? What what exactly happens to to create that inequity right out of the gate? Well, they're given just loans with higher interest rates, just you know, based on your credit. Um, that Brookings analysis—that's what it attributed it to. Um, you know, predatory rates. Predatory rates, um, or you know, just just worse rates, especially with private loans. If federal student loans are enough to to cover your you know college tuition, uh, you know, which you know may be the case, especially. Uh, in, in recent years, with tuition rates have been soaring, uh, and government subsidizing of in higher education has been dwindling and been cut over the past few decades. Um, you know, just as an example, in the late 1980s, per pupil, uh, federal and state subsidies for higher education were over you know eight thousand dollars. Uh, when inflation is taken into account, now it's just over a little over two thousand dollars. So you have a lot more people attending college nowadays, um, and, and you know the the government is subsidizing less and less of that, and that's think, part of the you know profiteering of of the college system, uh, and the banks think, play a big part of that. Sure, sure, and I think I think people tend to have. If they don't have debt, if they haven't been through this themselves, I think they tend to have this assumption that the people facing really crushing debt, that those people are somehow responsible. They they somehow screwed up. So so of all the people you talk to for your piece, who's who stuck out to you as someone who they did everything right? They played exactly by the rules. They bought into everything they're told, and now here they are, and they're going to die in debt. That kind of scenario. Who, who stuck out for you that way? I think you know. I, I spoke with um, some parents who took out these federal Parent Plus loans to pay their college, uh, you know, the, the college tuition for their children, uh, and, and you know, were this um, you know narrative is pushed in our society that at that. You know, higher education, a college degree is compulsory now. But in order to do that, for families that can't afford 
tuition out of pocket. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, a given to take on these, this huge amount of debt and to do whatever is necessary in order to, to get the loans just to pay the tuition, not really, uh, you know, worrying about uh, what may be the best loan. It's really in the matter of, you know, how can I get this money to, to pay for school uh, and, and then worry about it. Uh, and then those, you know, the rest of the economic issues come into play where, you know, wages are stagnant, you get out of college and you're, you know, making poverty wages. You have, you know, you look on um, job applications even now, uh, you know. You spoke to, I think, a, a child therapist, if I remember correctly, who had some $50,000 in debt or something. Or, or no, excuse me, that was what she made for, for a year, I believe. and. There's just no way she can make any headway with uh, with that kind of salary, right? Yeah, and that, that's kind of distressing because um, you know they got into uh, you know a, a field that uh, people are are needed. You're you're helping the community. Uh, you're engaged in social work. You're not going into that field to to make a ton of money. Right. Uh, but that you know. Those positions require master's degrees or you know, higher education training, and you need to take out debt to do that. And you're not getting paid a salary where uh, it's you know feasible to be able to pay that off, unless you're coming from a family or an economic background where it's not a big deal to pay uh, enormous amounts of tuition. So, real quickly, what has Biden said he would do, and what should he actually do? Um, both. At the end of January or before the end of January, and long term, he on the the campaign trail he promised to cancel ten thousand dollars of student debt for all Americans, and he promised to to make community college free and to cancel student debt for college graduates of historically black colleges and universities. He hasn't done any of those things. You know, in the past few months, he's. Uh, it expanded uh, a little bit public service loan forgiveness to um, you know several thousand people, you know which is great. But I, I think what's coming from the progressive movement is uh, this is a huge problem. It's a mounting problem. It's a big concern for uh, younger generations who are taking this debt on, and you know he needs to use his executive authority to to cancel. Uh, the debt, you know, I personally would like to see all of it be canceled. Uh, you know, a lot of progressives are capping that at at least fifty thousand dollars, and then if you're, uh, you know, making uh, more income, it'll you know come down after that. But I, I think that's the the bare minimum that needs to be done to address this issue. Michael Stanato, labor and economic justice reporter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. President Biden just had his summit for democracy last week, and Uriel Epstein is the executive director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, chaired by Gary Kasparov, and which works to strengthen democratic principles against mounting threats against the world. So, Uriel, I thank you for joining us. I wanted to talk to you about that and lots more, but thank you for joining us. Of course, thank you, Jonathan, for having me. So going into the Summit for Democracy, President Biden's initiative of his own, your organization had some concerns. Can you can you flesh out what those concerns were, explain that? Yeah, so well first let me perhaps really quickly just introduce our organization in case I imagine a number of viewers probably aren't familiar. So the Renew Democracy Initiative, RDI, was founded after the 2016 election 
demonstrated that the relevant divide was no longer left versus right in our view, but rather between those who wanted to fix the system and those who wanted to blow stuff up. So we brought together a super diverse group of folks from left and right, ranging from, as you mentioned, former world chess champion Gary Kasparov to Senator Heidi Heitkamp and Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who is a key witness in the first impeachment hearings. And our mission essentially is to defend and promote the values and institutions that have already made the world great. And that unfortunately are very much under assault, not just in the US, but around the world. And so that's actually why this summit is so very important because it's an opportunity for free countries to finally stand up and challenge this rise in authoritarian authoritarianism that's happening all over the place. And the key concerns that that we had essentially were twofold. So first, kind of this was a relatively technical concern, but it's who is going to be at this conference. And on that note, I've actually been somewhat impressed. So it was clear that that the White House, you know, and the State Department had a certain, you know, had a certain level of care, took a certain level of care when they chose which countries were going to attend. And so the fact that China and Turkey were excluded, but Taiwan was included, is actually something that's really important, and it sends, I think, an important message. But the other thing, and this is my single biggest concern with this conference is whether it's going to be primarily talk about how great democracy is in the abstract, or whether it will actually lead to the creation of a mechanism that will allow free countries around the world to cooperate with each other. I mean, it's honestly just incredible to me. It's it's really hard to believe that right now there does not exist an institution, an international institution that allows free countries to work together without being thwarted by authoritarian regimes. So whether that's the UN in which of course, you know, you have Venezuela and Cuba sitting on the Human Rights Council, or that's even NATO now, which is one obviously has Turkey as a member, which I think can hardly be classified as a democracy. But more importantly, NATO is primarily a military alliance. So that's not, you know, so it has other challenges associated with that. So what I really hope comes from this summit is ultimately an ability for free countries to get together and without authoritarian regimes getting in the way, being able to cooperate and get things done in defense of freedom and democracy. So you referenced, and, and I was referring to the rise of authoritarianism around the world, including here at home. What exactly are we supposed, if we're gonna solve it, right? If we're gonna solve that, mm-hmm. we need to understand how it arose. So what do we attribute that to? Do we attribute it to Trump? Do we attribute it to Putin? Or is it something that, that happens more organically if you're not vigilant? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really the latter. I mean, Trump and Putin, however much power they have and however terrible they may be, are ultimately opportunists, right? They take existing opportunities and they take advantage of them. And the fact is that ever since the Soviet Union fell in 1991, so many people assumed that history had ended, democracy had won, and that was it. It was the end of the conversation. I believe one of your advisors wrote a book saying that history had ended. Well, uh, Francis Fukuyama is a friend and he's a great yeah. guy. Uh, <laughs> he is not on our advisory board, uh, uh, I, I, I should be clear. But uh-huh. but that having been said, look, he wasn't alone, right? He wasn't the only sure. person who said or thought this. I mean, this was thought by, I think, you know, almost everybody really in the chattering class and, you know, among the, not maybe not you, <laughs> but but you then must have been smarter than 95% of uh, political commentators, so kudos. <laughs> you're doing but, this, you're handling this interview very well so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I like to think that flattery can get me anywhere. Um, <laughs> but um, most importantly, right, so people thought that, that, that essentially history had ended, 
democracy had won, authoritarianism had lost. But of course, that's not how things work, right? You know, evil doesn't die. It might remain, you know, buried under the rubble of the Berlin Wall for a while, but ultimately it'll arise again. And of course, that's what happened because when we assumed that history had ended and that we'd won, we essentially stopped making a case for liberal democracy. We stopped talking about how important these values of freedom and liberalism were to the world. And instead, we focused on, understandably to some extent, on the incredible economic prosperity that resulted in the you know, 15, 17 years up until 2008. And that led this pretty significant hole. Basically, a lot of people heard that democracy was good insofar as it promoted economic prosperity. So as soon as that economic prosperity stopped, right? As soon as we had a recession, as soon as people started losing their jobs, which was inevitable, right? Because things aren't always gonna be going well. They started losing trust in democracy itself. And that happened in Russia. In the 1990s, Russia, I mean, there was some talk of whether or not Russia would ultimately join NATO. And of course, that never came to pass. But what happened in the 90s was just an incredible economic depression. I mean, in Russian, the 90s were called the wild, wild 90s because there was mafia rule. People had lost their life savings. Everything was essentially collapsing. And they associated that with democracy. So then when Putin came into power, and thing and you know he implement he instituted some form of order but most importantly he got very lucky with oil prices where he came into office right as oil prices started going up and people started seeing their fortunes rise they associated that rise in fortunes with the authoritarianism practiced by putin which is why it's so important for us and why we're so focused on this at rdi is to make a case for liberal democracy, not just because it leads to prosperity, which of course we believe it does, but also because it's valuable in its own right. I mean, it is what enables us to be free. It's what enables us to disagree with one another. I mean, I I have no doubt that ultimately you and I will disagree with one another, but the very thing that allows us to do so constructively is the system that exists in the US, which allows people to disagree without having to worry about consequences. So you you did refer earlier to your organization as sort of spanning the political spectrum. But I think especially TYT viewers are not gonna say, well, when I think of the left, Heidi Heitkamp is certainly the first mm-hmm. person who comes to mind, right? We're talking about a centrist, possibly blue dog Democrat here. So, um, and you know, in looking at some of the folks who are, are involved, um, uh, it, 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 the Lincoln Project, came to mind, right? And and mm-hmm. my whole thing with the Lincoln Project was, this looks to me like folks who are essentially conservative, but are not um, Trump or MAGA, trying to redeem conservatism mm-hmm. from MAGA world. And it's hard for me not to look at an organization such as yours, which seems to be quite well funded, has any number of big names, Bill Kristol, Jen Rubin, who come from that sort of never Trump world. So, so when people look at this, should they? What what do you say to skeptics like myself who say this is about redeeming a certain core of economic values and 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 just ensuring that conservatism doesn't go down with Donald Trump? Well, first and foremost, I'd just like to say that I'm flattered that you think we're well funded. 
so that's <laughs> I look at I, your staff page. You have a staff. We, we also have <laughs> well, I mean, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, setting setting that valid. aside for a moment, yeah. looking um, so looking at the board. So first and foremost, what I'll say is our priority is not about redeeming any particular political ideology on the left or the right. But rather, it's about bringing diverse ideologies together in the center, as you pointed out, but most importantly, in defense of democracy. Mm-hmm. So while we do believe that a free market is something that's essential, whether somebody believes in a single payer system and universal health care, in you know, whether they're against it, they're for it, that's all fine. I have no problem with any of those beliefs. And RDI as an organization does not take a stand on them. Our priority is that the system that we have in place is one where we can efficiently and effectively disagree about those things and come to solutions without actually breaking the thing itself, right? Without actually breaking the system. I, you know, the metaphor that I often use is our job is to set the table. What you want to eat is ultimately up to you. So that's, I think that's an incredibly important place for our DI, for, for there to be an organization playing that role, which can take sort of people from an incredibly diverse array of positions and bring them together around that table. Now, of course, ultimately, yes, I mean, we do believe in a certain level of, um, you know, we, we, we believe in, 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 in certain free market elements that exist and, and other things, but our core, our core, I'd say the, the the core element of RDI is all about making sure that different people can come together in a system that is consistently able to resolve their disagreements in a peaceful and fair way. I, I want to switch tack, uh, tax a little bit and, and ask you about the social aspect of this. I, I saw in, in, I guess it was an op-ed maybe by you or by, uh, uh, by, Renew, by the Renew Democracy Initiative that sort of lumped together like on one side we've got um, the January 6th attackers who are who are making dictators happy around the world. On the other side, we have people claiming that uh, oppression is built into the fabric of America, and that that's making foreign dissidents cringe. I think was the phrase. And to me, it it seems like the the ability to recognize how oppressive elements were baked into the American project. From the get-go, and and I'm sure you know the examples as well as I do, the ability to recognize that and call that out to me, that's always been the thing that has most made America great and has inspired dissidents. So I, I sort of was a little surprised, and that was mm. part of what made me think about your politics. So I'm I'm wondering if you can address that a little bit, and then I do want to hear a little bit more about how do we fix this. Right. Well, first, I mean that's actually a really good question. So I really appreciate you asking it. And and you know so I think what you're citing is the letter that w- was signed by 52 dissidents from 28 oppressive countries as part of our Front Lines of Freedom project. And what is so I mean I don't I'll, obviously I don't have to talk about how awful and terrible January 6th was. Uh, I'm sure all of your viewers uh, will agree with me on that point. Now the other point I also think is important because. Yes, America is flawed. I think there are very significant flaws in the US as there are with any country, any individual, whether free or unfree. Um, But I also think it's really important for us to sort of have to put those things into context. So, you know, we mentioned we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but my dad was born in the Soviet Union in 1936 under Joseph Stalin, right? So, you know, I grew up on these stories of how terrible communism was. 
but also about how looking to the US gave so many Russian dissidents, especially Jews, hope. Yeah. You know, there there's this um my dad would share this story about how in 1953 he was almost arrested because upon hearing of Stalin's death, um he didn't cry quickly enough. And that was enough to, to almost arrest him. And so even though I was born here, I saw America through the eyes of my parents. Right. So the the thing that you're citing and the reason we talk about this is because self-reflection we believe is incredibly important. Recognizing the flaws of America is critical. But self-flagellation actually yeah. can very quickly become problematic. That's a line and we all have to walk. That's that's absolutely right. Uriel Epstein from the Renew Democracy Initiative, thank you so much. Thank you.